Good morning, good afternoon, or good whatever time you happen to be listening. And welcome. This is the first episode of February 2023's BV podcast, All Things Rural Dorset, which we hope you'll enjoy. I'm Jenny Devitt. And it's hello from me, Terry Bennett. Laura Hitchcock opens this episode with her monthly editor's letter, followed by some of your letters and comments, and that's followed by an explanation by Kingston Morwood Principal Luke Rake on why the college will very regretfully no longer be able to offer apprenticeships. And you can hear my interview with cricketing raconteur Henry Blofeld. Let's hear first from Laura. I've got to first start with an apology to everybody who's looked at our website on their phone for the last few weeks. It probably hasn't escaped your attention that we've been proudly titled Newsweek since Christmas. We're not, I assure you, in the midst of a grand takeover bid. Rather, we have a new website. And the simple task of tracking down why we are called Newsweek when looking at it on a phone utterly escaped me. But through grit, perseverance and a lot of YouTube watching, I fixed it. Go me! High five! But the fix promptly broke the menu. And in fixing the menu, I broke the sections page. And then I managed, still don't know how, to put the sections page all over the homepage. By this time, in a flustered, frustrated panic, very, very bored with my own incompetence and frankly raging at the dark and evil arts of website maintenance generally, I hit the big server switch, which resets the website to the day before. And we're back to Newsweek. Anyhow, suffice to say, I was ultimately victorious. The website works and we are no longer Newsweek. Now, with big things in this issue... Dorset Island Discs and Random 19 have returned with two pillars of our Dorset community. I interviewed Henry Blowers Blofeld, who's coming to Dorset next month. Luke Rake gave us an exclusive on the damaging rumours that have been circulated in some areas about the cancellation of apprenticeships at Kingston Morwood College. Local man Steve Tarrant has been awarded motorsport's highest honour, an award reserved for the likes of Sterling Moss and Sir Jackie Stewart. Farmer James Cousins tells us about his horrifically stressful January and we take a look at whether second homeowners should pay a additional council tax in Dorset. Plenty to get your teeth into this month, so I'd go and make a coffee if I were you. And don't let the websites grind you down. P.S. Congratulations to our farming journalist Andrew Livingston and his wife Ellie on the birth of their son Charlie this week. P.P.S. Special mention to our German-speaking daughter-in-law Sally, who provided correct phrasing for the Lucky Pig Valentine's traditions in Germany. Who knew? Well, apart from flower columnist Charlotte Toombs and probably all the Germans, obviously. And PPPS, thank you to fellow business owner and website battler James for his support through the disaster-strewn website of doom. His helpful advice? You're still Newsweek. It's been a month. May as well stick with it now. Just change your Facebook name. And now some of your letters, starting with comments on the suggestion that we have a motorway in Dorset. Andrew Livingston's article in the January issue on the potential for a motorway in Dorset raised a number of emails, including one from Sheila Grange of Dorchester. She writes, In response to Mr Livingston's article on the need for a motorway, perhaps he could inform us as to which ancient holloways, protected AONBs, or productive farmland he might like to plough up. The fact that we have no motorway has actually preserved so much of our county from overdevelopment, and the presence of one would actually detrimentally impact the very local producers he's trying to help. Jack Pleacher of Winborn writes, Is Mr Livingston seriously suggesting that Devon's local producers are assisted by people flying along the M3 to London? The success of any business lies in the quality of its product and in its marketing. In fact, many a weak product has succeeded thanks to its marketing strength, If local producers need more success, they need to learn how to be better at their business, 
not blame it on the lack of easy access to big roads. Julie Noakes sent in an email to say, If we must have a motorway in Dorset, Mr Livingstone, let's at least make it end at Dorchester. I, for one, am sick and tired of Dorset being a Jurassic coast and nothing else. Three quarters of the county is a fair drive from the coast, and yet the beautiful rural majority is consistently overlooked in terms of funding and services. Bring us people, and the country's eye may finally turn upon us. Karen Bowen emails on the subject of solar panels and the piece by Rupert Hardy, the chairman of the North Dorset CPRE, in the BV magazine of January, and indeed in our podcast. Hear, hear, Rupert Hardy. It is astonishing that for far too long there's been a seemingly broad acceptance to the quick and easy fix of letting private landowners and developers opt for huge-scale solar farms when the rooftop solution bears so much scientific evidence for success and does so little visual harm. Why is nobody in authority paying attention to this? Rita Madley from Blandford wrote in to say, Thank you for your illuminating article from Rupert Hardy on the solar farms versus rooftop panels debate. It has always been my instinct that fields of reflective panels are wrong. But at a time when we must begin to generate more green energy, it's been difficult for me to argue my case effectively. The horror of discovering oneself to be a NIMBY. Your article provided such a clear case with published evidence to support my instinctive understanding. Why, oh why, are we not implementing rooftop solar as a matter of urgency? On the politics. It has slowly become apparent that the representative for the Labour Party in North Dorset tends to veer towards haranguing those in charge of our very broken country while not suggesting any alternative solutions from his own party. This is, I feel, no reflection of him as a person, but rather is symptomatic of the party as a whole. North Dorset may be a permanently blue seat, but that doesn't mean that every constituent votes that way. We can all see, hear and feel that it's broken. What many of us want is to hear what other parties might actually do. The point of these columns is surely to understand a different point of view, if we're tired and frustrated by the current crop of blues in charge and to raise discussions on local and national issues. That's from Alan Wills of Wimborne. On the haunting of Sanfordorcas Manor, Barry Rate commented via Facebook, We were lucky. I think it was about 30 years ago we took our son to Sanfordorcas Manor when he was a small boy. We cheekily knocked on the door and Sir Mervyn himself answered. Instead of getting rid of us, he asked us in and gave us a personal tour during which he told us of all the facts in the attached article. We thanked him very much. It made our day. What a lovely man. Joss Mullinger communicates via Facebook. We were privileged to be given a superb guided tour of this fascinating house by Sir Mervyn Medlicott in 2019. He really brought the history to life and the group we were in was spellbound. Veronica Barrett of Guildford wrote in on the subject of Roger Ridout. She writes, I've been reading your article about Roger Ridout, which was in the BV in November 2020, with great interest. I'm not a Ridout, but I am descended from the Fords of Shillingston. I have a will left by Thomas Ford in 1805, and in it he leaves the Roger Ridout house to his wife. The will of Thomas Ford, 1719 to 1805, February 1805, says, This is my last will and testament. 
I give to my wife late Roger Ridout's house and orchard and £10 a year for her life. She might receive it herself. If my son don't pay her, she might go to Mr Tice of Blandford and receive it. But if she marry again, she is to lose it directly to James or his family. I thought, writes Veronica, Roger Ridout died in 1811, so I'm now very puzzled. Could this be a house belonging to his father or another older relative who died before 1805? Thomas's son James died two years later, in 1807, and he left the house to his own son James, and his will says, and also a dwelling house with office, and all unto belonging called and known by said name of Ridouts during my said term therein unoccupied, it being located and situate in the parish of Shillingston or Shilling Oakford. I can't find a Shilling Oakford, says Veronica, and wonder if it's actually Oakford Fitzpain. I can see on an 1885 map that there is a mill on the road between Shillingston and Oakford Fitzpain, and another one in Fiddleford. But I'm wondering which house Thomas and James Ford are referring to, and how did they come to own it in the first place? Were they part of the smuggling gang, I wonder? I wonder if Roger Guttridge, or any of your readers, could shed any light on it for me, please. Roger Guttridge comments as follows. Veronica's puzzlement is based on the assumption, which I had also made until now, that Roger Ridout remained at Oakford Fitzpain Mill until his death, which was indeed in 1811. But we don't know that, and my guess now is that he and his wife Mary, who died in 1809, must have left there at some point between 1787 and 1805, probably selling the house to the Fords. I say 1787 because he is listed in the Dorchester jail registers that year as a miller of Oakford Fitzpain and his crime as smuggling, so was presumably still there then. He was a well-known character in North Dorset, so it's no surprise that his old house was effectively named after its association with him. I'm guessing that the stream which once powered the waterwheel here may also have marked the Oakford Fitzpain Shillingston parish boundary. The property, which last time I passed still had the old millstones on show as ornaments, probably sat in both parishes, which may explain any confusion there. Shilling Oakford, or Ockford, is an old name for Shillingstone, making it the third of the three Oakfords, the others being Oakford Fitzpain and Child Oakford. Roger Ridout's father, born 1708, was William, not Roger, and he lived at Farringdon in the parish of Shroton. Roger the Smuggler effectively introduced their surname to Oakford Fitzpain. Roger's mother was a Fiddleford girl, Susanna Appowell, and in 1746, as a boy of ten, Roger inherited a leasehold house and land there from his maternal grandfather. Fiddleford Mill was where the Ridout gang stored their contraband in later years, and may also have been where Roger learned his milling skills, though that is speculation on my part. Veronica's information about the Fords adds another piece to a Roger Ridout jigsaw that has been gradually growing since I interviewed my grandfather, Jim Ridout of Fiddleford, about the family legends for a school project in 1967. Thank you, Veronica. And finally, from your letters, Sir Christopher Coville, who's the Sherborne CPRE chairman, writes in about the neglect of Newell House in Sherborne. Sherborne CPRE are deeply concerned at the parlous state of Newell House, a Grade II historic building, which stands in an exceptionally prominent position at the junction of the A30 and the Marston Road. The western side of the house 
is thought to date back to the 17th century, and the house was listed in 1950. However, in recent years the fabric has been allowed to deteriorate and is now on the SAVE at risk register. Alongside the house, there's a listed barn dated as being built in the early to mid-16th century. No access is permitted to either building. Sherborne CPRE have repeatedly raised their concerns with the conservation team at Dorset Council, but while seemingly sympathetic to our case, they seem totally unable or unwilling to do anything to reverse the decline of this important feature of the Sherborne townscape. Offers to engage with the owner have also been fruitless. It's clear that our county representatives are either powerless or disinclined to take any positive action to preserve our precious heritage buildings. We find it disappointing that a house listed 72 years ago by an official government agency is then effectively abandoned by local authorities when it deteriorates. It is sadly ironic that as Sherborne House is being transformed into a remarkable asset for the town centre, another, even older, much-loved building has been allowed to become derelict. Something must be done before it's too late. And with some 350 listed buildings in Sherborne, this needs to be a wake-up call for us all. By raising further our concerns, I'm confident that all residents and our town council will then call for urgent action from Dorset County Council. There was something of a minor uproar recently when ill-informed word spread that the apprenticeships offered by Dorset's land-based college, Kingston Moorwood, had suddenly been terminated. This is not the case. The college will no longer be offering apprenticeships, but with effect from March, not immediately, and all current students have been catered for. Luke Rake told me more about the scheme and why the college is, regretfully, having to stop offering this educational option. Kingston Moorwood has run a, a number of apprenticeships um, over the years. We are a land-based specialist college, so they tend to be focused on things like agriculture, arboriculture or tree surgery, and areas allied to that. But we, we have a relatively small number of specialist uh, provision. And, and these apprenticeships are scattered all over the county of Dorset, are they? Uh, yes, and beyond into the neighbouring counties as well. So we have what's known as a sub-regional catchment. Uh, we're the only college of our type for about 60 miles from where we are, so as a result we have quite a large reach. Now, just uh, Luke, just why was there all the fuss and kerfuffle locally recently? Was it a, a total misunderstanding of the college's intentions to close down the apprenticeships? No, I don't think so. I think people are... The, 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 the college has had a very long history, in excess of 70 years, and so most people who work within the rural area in the, in the county will have had some connection to us, and, and that's lovely. Um, but apprenticeships are a relatively small part of our provision and <clears throat> an area which has quite a lot of profile at the moment. It is um, National Apprenticeships Week, for example, and apprenticeships have been pushed very hard by the government. However, for us, they are just a small part of a, a much wider jigsaw of, of provision. Now, I understand that, that the reason that you're having, sadly, to uh, terminate the apprenticeships is because of, is partly because of government funding. So it's rather ironic that, they, that the government is, as you've just said, pushing apprenticeships. And at the same time, uh, they have reduced the amount that you would receive. Uh, yes, that is, as you say, somewhat ironic. And I think, I think it's, it's 
apprenticeships are, are, as I say, a part of a jigsaw of provision for, for young people moving into industry. And within rural areas in particular, provision is very diffuse. And that is part of the challenge. So um, over the last few years, all apprenticeships have been reviewed and some funding for some apprenticeships has gone up. Gone up. So, for example, in engineering or ICT, IT services, there's, there's a, a big push within government. And this is... Uh, at the risk of being slightly political, I suppose, is, is you know, government priorities are not necessarily the same as Dorset's. And so what we've seen is a reduction in the funding available to some apprenticeship streams, and it's not just land-based. Um, so they, they, they become, you know, for us, economically untenable, unfortunately. Well, we'll, we'll come into that in a moment. So would you, would you say, in essence, that as far as, as, as agricultural colleges and colleges such as, such as Kingston Moorwood, the government has... Uh, giving with one hand and taking away with the other, or giving in theory with one hand and taking away with the other. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a very fair assessment. And I, I'm a national director of a, a, a group called Landex, which is the National Land-Based Colleges Group. And there are no land-based colleges that have, you know, are are doing this easily. Even the very large colleges are struggling with making apprenticeships pay. And, and this is, of course, a concern for us in, in Dorset, in rural areas, because we, we understand the need for land management and, of course, production of food. So just looking back at the sort of history of apprenticeships, how long has, has the college been offering them? Um, in one form or another, regardless of the title, work-related learning has always been part of the college's provision. Um, the college was founded in 1949, and at that time, people would have done a, an agricultural certificate. They may have come here for uh, one year, and in, in those days, it was pretty much residential. Um, as time went on, people wanted to stay on their family farms and, and combine their learning with, with work. And, and actually, that is what we do with our full-time students. A full-time student here will only actually be in college three days a week because we understand the need to... Um, balance the needs of home and part-time work with with college. So whilst apprenticeships have been a a very traditional model with one day in college and and four days at work, um, most full-time provision now here is three days in college and two days doing something else anyway. Now, I understand that part of the reason um, is not just down to a reduction in, in government support for apprenticeships. Part of the reason is that the apprenticeships have been gradually getting less popular. Is that so? Yeah, yes, we've seen we've seen a reduction in numbers over time. Um, part of this is is rural depopulation and demographics. So the number of young people in Dorset is declining, and declining very rapidly. Um, Dorset is one of the the oldest counties in in, in in the country, in terms of its average age. And so the 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 combination of economies of scale and reduced funding and the the dispersed rural nature of our provision. And the costs thereof mean that collectively it's become a regrettable, a regrettable decision that we have had to stop. How much, I'm wondering, um, Luke, has the ongoing cost of living crisis affected this, uh, the decision to stop offering apprenticeships? I don't think it's affected us in this particular decision. I think it's exacerbated it around the edges. But I, I think one of the things we are now seeing is that the cost of living is impacting students accessing learning. So rather than the college being affected as such, um, the costs of coming to, coming to college are, are you know, growing all the time. So, for example, if you are at college, you don't get a bus pass over 16. And that applies whether you're in a school sixth form or college. 
So that, that's a cost that families have to bear. And in some cases, it's too much. Yes, in some cases, bus, uh, bus fares are really um, prohibitive for a lot of people, aren't they? Well, absolutely. I mean, for, to come to college currently, although we're trying to, you know, we already subsidise college transport to the tune of, of several hundred thousand pounds. Then that's a cost we bear. The students still have to pay £30 a week to come to college, and that's a lot of money. So if I understand it correctly, Luke, the, 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 reason, the reason is a financial one. Uh, that is that the college is ending up um, subsidising, too heavily having to subsidise each and every apprentice that you have. Well, exactly, yes. It, it goes beyond subsidy in the sense that, that you know, we're, we're making a significant financial loss and the college is in a financially perilous position anyway. We, we, we struggle um, post-COVID in particular with, with balancing the books and, and at the moment we are charged by government to try and resolve that financial challenge and unfortunately that does mean that offering a rate, a, 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 as wide a range of courses as possible it is simply not possible. Now, obviously, the the current crop of apprenticeship uh, apprentices you have will complete their apprenticeships. You, they're not just going to be left in the lurch. Uh, oh, no, no, of course not. No, they're all they're all going to complete, and um, the, those who are on our books currently will will either complete with us, and and those are in in process now, or those who've just started an apprenticeship will will have their training completed. Um, potentially here, but delivered by either Bicton College uh, in East Devon or Sparshot College just over the border in Hampshire. But I'm quite sure that for all of you at Kingston, Morewood, all the staff, it will be something of a sad day when uh, when you have to close this particular branch of your learning. It is, and it's always a sad day when you when you lose provision. I, I, I've been a head of sixth form in my time, and you know we made decisions about which A levels to offer sometimes, and and inevitably there would have been some learners who wanted to do those things. So it is it is sad, and sadly, you know, we've had to let a few staff go as well, and that's 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 deeply regretful, and, and no one enjoys that. Um, but we have to unfortunately consider the whole, and that, that's that's what I'm charged to do. Well, I hope very much, Luke, that things will look up um, come spring financially for the college because it's very highly valued in the county. I know that. Yeah, that's very kind. Yes. I mean, it is. these are challenging times for everyone. That's not just colleges. And uh, we're doing the best we can to stabilise the situation. And uh, we were Ofsteaded in the summer and, and we got a very strong Ofsted report and a very good one. So the quality of what we do is, is very high. We appreciate our role in the county and that's that's ultimately our moral compass and that's what we're going to do. That was Luke Rake, who's principal of Kingston Morewood College outside Dorchester, on the reasons the college is going to have to stop offering apprenticeships. Henry, thank you very much for doing this for us and thank you for joining us on the BV podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Now, you've got a one-man show coming up, which is An Evening with Blowers, My Dear Old Things. That's become your catchphrase, really, hasn't it? Well, it's been in my catchphrase since for about 40 years now, yes. How did that come about? It came about, we, I, in, I think it was 1976, when we drove to India, and it, it just happened one day there. I wrote a letter to someone, one of our people with us, couldn't remember his name, wrote my dear old thing, and it, and it stuck. It was one of those silly things, you know. It's been something that I've, I've used. It's always very useful if you can't remember someone's name. It gives you a second chance, if you see what I mean. Definitely. Now, you were primarily a, a cricket commentator, but you did your final stint for Test Match Special back in 2017, I believe. So you've got the one-man show, and, and you're writing quite a bit, I think, aren't you? 
Well, I write books, yes. I've written 20-odd books. And I'm writing writing books that goes on. Theatre, I've been doing... I've been in the theatre regularly since about 2000, yeah, to, for 25 years. And I've done a great number of one-man shows, and I've done I've done two-man shows with um, Graham Swan, the offspring and bowler, with Peter Baxter, who was my producer at TMS, and John Bly, who was the Antiques Retro. He and I did a two-man show for a bit. We did it up in the Edinburgh Festival for two or three years, I remember John and I, and also around his part of the world. But sadly, he's very busy as an antique dealer. And all, and he really hadn't got time to do it full time, so um, or anything like enough as far as I was concerned. So that came to an end. So the stage has been part of my life for well for a quarter of a century now, I suppose. Okay, well, you you started life as a a sports journalist, really, didn't you? Well, I suppose I did. Yes, I I I always say I was a cricket a cricket writer rather than a sports journalist. But yes, I suppose I did start as a sports journalist right back in the sixties. Yes, I think I that's fair. Cricket was always your first love, and yet that was always going to be the direction that, uh, that your career took, I suppose. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and you, you played cricket, notably at, at Cambridge, didn't you? I did, actually. I mean, I was probably quite a good cricketer. I mean, I scored 200 at Lords, and I scored a hundred. my only first-class 100 at Lords for Cambridge in, um, I suppose, two years, three years later, in 1959. Mm. You then went into the, the Test Match special team in the early 70s, 1972, I believe, didn't you? 72, I started. Yes, I did. And how did you actually get into that? Had you been doing commentating in another field or, or what? No, I hadn't. Not at all, no. I... I just um, sort of started doing the BBC were quite interested in me because I had a they thought I had a good voice and that I was able to describe things and so um, they you know gave me I had one two tests and uh, then it all, all happened um, quite quickly yeah. you know, which was good. Just reading one or two accounts somebody said online you're known for your plummy voice and slightly eccentric observations of unrelated matters around the ground do you think that's fair? Yes, I think. I mean, if you absolutely, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Uh, that's always been labelled at me because it's very important when you commentate to paint the picture. I believe, and the picture is not just cricket. The picture is what you see, the ground, and everything else. Well, I think that's what people loved about your commentary, if I may say, that uh, it wasn't just what was happening on the field; it was everything else as well. Well, I think I think probably that is. I mean, I, I think now, nowadays they wouldn't wear it. And I don't think anyone really does it today. But, um, you know, it, it, like everything else, commentary evolves. And um, I've sort of inherited the traditions really begun by Brian Johnston and John Arlott, who were both two great broadcasters, you know. And inevitably, when you work with people like that, some of it rubs off. It's bound to happen, I think, you know. In any walk of life, I think if you work with someone who's, who is is really, really good, it does rub off, doesn't it? I mean, I'm sure you may have found that in, in, in your life. Oh, definitely. Uh, most definitely does. And you mentioned Brian Johnson and John Arliss, and there was Christopher Martin Jenkins, Bill Frindle, Jeff Boycott, Jonathan Agnew, who's still going. I mean, it came across as being like a meeting of old chums at a local cricket match. It had a very convivial feel to the, the programme in those days. I think it did. And I think this was its great strength. I mean, I think really it was unique among, well, certainly sporting programmes. There was nothing quite like it. And Arlott and Johnson were the two who made it the programme that it, it is, or that it still is. Yes, I say it is, that it still is. 
uh, very much so. And I mean, they were great broadcasters. They would have been great broadcasters of whatever the subject they chose to talk about. And it was great. They came together. In fact, not until 1970. Ireland began in 46 with the home broadcasting. On the, I think it would have been the light program then. And Jonas went to television in 46, didn't join Test Match Wrestle until 1970. I mean, it's, it's a few years now. Do you miss the programme? And... Do you admit, I never look backwards. I never mm-hmm. go look at things that have gone by. I mean, there's no point. No, I don't, really. I mean, I do and I don't. I don't because I've got so much to do. I mean, I work very much full time. And um, I haven't got time to sort of think. And Looking backwards and regretting things is the most unproductive, whatever you like to say, emotion of all, because you can't do anything about it. Well, don't worry about it. I've always, always believed that, that if the door shuts, get on and look at the next one. Don't go back and look and wish you could sort of reopen something that's gone by. Very sound advice. Anyway, tell us about the show. It's an evening with blowers, my dear old things. And um, we should mention that it's coming up at the Tivoli Theatre in Wimborne on the 8th of March, the Newton Stour Hall in Sturmston Newton on the 16th of March, and the Memorial Theatre in Froome on the 17th of March. Uh, What may people expect from this? Well, I'll tell you exactly. Four years ago, I was very lucky. It was one of the eight people who went up, BBC sent out to India to make the last proper version of the Real Marigold Hotel. And it was terrific fun, and a lot of things happened. Some of it was on camera, but a lot of things behind the scenes too. And then COVID took over, so I didn't have a chance to tell anyone the story, because all theatres you know, closed down. But now I'm, we've started again. I'm telling the first act is entirely for the Real Marigold Hotel, what went on behind the scenes, all the people. I'm Britt Eklund, Barbara Dixon, Sandra Rhodes, Paul Chuckle. I mean, we, we were quite a crew, really, and, and others. And it was, it was the greatest fun. And there were some great sto- good stories. And there are a lot of laughs in that first act. The relationships between eight strangers getting to know each other was funny. I love India. It's my favourite country, not only for cricket, but also as a country for holidays. I've spent many holidays in India. And it was wonderful to be in Pondicherry, first of all, the old French colony in the south of India, and then up in the Himalayan foothills in Rishikesh which, of course, the Beatles made famous when they went out to see their guru there in the 60s. Then in the second act of the show, I go back to GMS a little bit what we were talking about, and I talk about Brian Johnston and John Arlott and how these two great broadcasters made that test match special into the programme that it is today. And there are some wonderful stories. (laughs) And it really sort of, I think, gets the flavour of the programme and the genius of those two men across. And I think it, it, it works very well as a second act. And both acts go on for about, I don't know, about an hour each. And it, it's all very good fun. I shouldn't really say this, but touch wood, it goes quite well. But not just for the cricket connoisseur. There's more, more to it than that. Well, no, no. You've got lots of people like Jeffrey Boycott, Phil Tufnell and Agos and all the rest who play cricket deal with all that. I'd rather like to deal with all the amusing things of life around the periphery in a way. And I think that's probably more appropriate for me. And so um, it's it's got rather more than just cricket in it. In fact, a lot more. In fact, there's not a great deal of cricket per se in it, but there's an awful lot of laughter. 
That sounds good to me. And tickets are obtainable via Simon Fielder. So it's www.simonfielder.com. I think also tickets are available in theatres. At the theatres, indeed, yes. Part of the the benefit here is to the Shine Charity. What can you tell us about them? The Chance to Shine, it's called, it was invented by well, the charity by Mervyn King when he was governor of the Bank of England. And it's to raise money to introduce cricket to uh, children born in circumstances of poverty where cricket wouldn't normally arrive on that doorstep. And it's done wonders. I mean, it's introduced a huge number of children to the game of cricket and has made a great deal of difference to their lives. And there's a little video with Alistair Cook in it, which we show at the, at the halftime, which shows exactly what Chance to Shine does do. And I think it's a very worthwhile charity. And what does the future hold for you, Henry? With the age of 83 and three quarters, I'm not quite certain. Um, <laughs> I shall go on touring with my show all through this year. And I've got several more books I've got to write and people write to me and ask me to make speeches. And so I do that as well. And I make the old commercial, you know, use my voice. Anything, really. I'm up for anything. So um, <laughs> people needn't hold back from asking me. It sounds good to me. Well, I look forward to seeing you, hopefully, at Stemmerston Newton in due course. Oh, well, do come along. And um, afterwards, I shall be selling books. My wife, Valeria, is my bookseller in the foyer. So do come along and say hi. It'd be lovely to meet you. Anyway, Henry, very many thanks for joining us. Not at all. Thank you for taking the trouble, Elding. And that's it for this first BV podcast episode for the month of February. Terry and I will be back in a week's time with more subjects of local Dorset interest. Until then, goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt. And from me, Terry Bennett.